You're listening to Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio. Venture capital is Anya Nowitzki's dream job. She is founding partner at Vule Capital, Europe's first venture capital fund for female founders. Anya has been recognised as one of the most notable women and a catalyst hero by the next woman.com. Susie Thorpe spoke to Anya about her work. Anya Nowinski is the founding partner of Vule Capital, Europe's first venture capital firm investing in female founders. Anya is an investor in residence at Google for Startups and runs monthly pitch clinics for female founders and has been featured in many publications, including the Financial Times. She has also been recognised as one of the most notable women and a catalyst hero by the nextwomen.com. That is quite an achievement. Anya says venture capital is her dream job. Well, it, it took me 20 years to figure that out, funnily enough. But, you know, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm not really an investor. And I keep saying to people, I keep walking around and pretending to be a VC. Because I just, I love building businesses. That's what I've been doing for the last 15, 20 years. Um, and I finally found a job where I get to build a multi- or help build multiple businesses all at the same time. It's, it's perfect time for me. Anya recently had a baby and was committed to work in venture capital at the same time too. She wanted to breastfeed. So big job plus becoming a mother means making life as efficient as possible. Anya realized there was not a particular good breast pump on the market. Absolutely. I Until LV have launched theirs just a few months ago, which was unfortunately too late for my child and for me, um, breast pumps haven't really changed in decades. Um, and it's funny, I was recently doing a, a diagram for somebody and uh, I, I literally showed a, a broken down diagram of one of the top brands. Thing came in 22 different pieces and it's supposed to be a portable model that you're supposed to be using out and about. Mm. I think any mother um, who has ever gone through this process knows that 22 individual pieces that need to be washed after every single use, which is noisy and painful, is, is not a suitable contraption. Finding the right breast pump was the easy part but it wasn't getting the attention needed to make women's lives easier in the working sphere. I found one that was launched in the US um, and it was just a, a whole reimagined approach to breast pump. It, 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 some, some publication called it the iPhone of breast pumps and I fully agree. With it, unfortunately, came the story, the horrific story of the founder who had major issues raising money. She was badly treated by investors. In fact, it was covered by the New Yorker and Bloomberg in the end because the story was so horrible. She had kind of the worst set of experiences of all of us put together. And it was incredibly disappointing because investors did not understand the product, did not understand the market, did not understand her as a female founder. And thankfully, since then, the market has moved forward quite a lot. But the fact that LV still remains the largest femtech funding round and it's at $40 million tells you how far we still have to go. Some of the other tech rounds, which are in hundreds of millions, you suddenly understand that this area has been massively underinvested into for us. Explains her role as investor in residence at Google for Startups in London. 
This role came in almost like as a result of a symbiotic relationship we have with Google. You know, we, we started off as a very young VC. Um, we had very few resources when we first got going. We still have very few resources because we plow them into our companies as much as we can. And Google was, at least Google for startups, was going through this transformation. Uh, they obviously have the resources to dedicate to the ecosystem in London. Uh, originally when the campus was launched, uh, this was the core of the new London kind of infrastructure for startups. Since that, then over the last decade, the, the, the whole ecosystem in London has evolved and therefore the role of the campus has changed. So what they tried to do is use those resources to help the right kinds of startups and also the right kinds of investors. Um, so for us, it's, it's a symbiotic relationship. So I mentor residents of the cafe um, here downstairs as part of my role. I run the investor in residence kind of office hours at least once a month. Um, and in exchange, we get certain resources such as being able to be based here, which is fantastic and obviously a huge cost saving for us, but also gets us closer to some amazing companies. And we also run our events here together with Google. So one of them being our monthly pitch clinic for female founders, which again gives us access to a space that's perfectly suited for it and an infrastructure for other things that we already also have in the pipeline because it's a family-friendly building, for example, which um, allows babies and children and caters for that possibility. So it's, it seems like a natural partnership for us. Raising awareness of women founders and promoting diversity, I asked Anya if we have reached a tipping point for women founders and entrepreneurs. It's an interesting question. And I say that because obviously there's been a lot of discussion around investment in women over the last couple of years. But very sadly, the numbers are actually declining since 2016. Despite a lot of my colleagues walking around saying they're going to invest in women, the results are just not there. The recent numbers from Atomico's report on the state of the industry show yet another decline. And part of it, I think, is because people think that if they're doing all these pitching competitions and office hours, that that's enough. But the fundamental structure of the industry has to change if we genuinely want to make a difference terms and how we do business have to change and and for us that's been a key realization when I came into the space I I was a novice I figured it out as I went along you know a typical entrepreneur it was it was kind of like oh well I'll, I'll work it out now a year and a half since we launched I have clarity over what does or doesn't work and then it's a bit of a wake-up call for some of my colleagues when we say to them for example that we take ordinary shares that we don't do prefs, we don't do ratchets, we focus on value, not valuations. Over the last 20 years or so, terms and financial instruments being used by investors have become more and more complex. A typical term sheet can sometimes be 60 something pages long. It includes instruments that founders don't understand because they're so complex. Most VCs I know take preferred shares, for example, which most founders don't really understand. They don't realize that those shares entitle an investor to a larger portion of the upside um, if something goes wrong, but also if something goes right. For example, preferred shares typically kick in when there's a liquidation event. So most founders think, oh, well, that's when things go wrong and then investors try to claw back the value. But unfortunately, things like a sale of a business also classifies as a liquidation event. So founders get caught in these instruments that they don't fully get and they don't see full implications of. And actually investors get 
a disproportional share of the return while carrying less of the risk. In some cases, we've seen term sheet, we walked away from a deal with two other investors recently where if you've done the mathematical calculations of the payouts using the, the formula being proposed by investors, you would never get an agreement between founders and investors on the sale of a business because investors had a, a, a direct incentive to sell the business for an even lower price, at which point they would get higher return and the founders would lose a big chunk of their upside. So those kinds of things don't work. And actually what I found is that women don't want to go down that route. They're clear about the kind of culture and approach to their business that they want to create, and they're looking for a real partner in their investor, which I think is a really positive and constructive thing and a very confident thing to do. And those types of behaviors don't match the businesses they're trying to build. So if industry wants to invest in women, I think they need to seriously look at how they're investing in general. We perceive women founders. Now, is there a big divide still between men and women? I think there is, and I think culture is a very important word. You know, it it drives a lot of things within an organisation. You know, a lot of us read Zappos's kind of book, and we understand the impact it has on the face and direction of the business, on how employees perceive their jobs, how committed they are, how long they stay, and actually, women have been shown to build businesses that are much more flexible, much more open, much more diverse. And actually, from a society point of view, that's great. But also from a business point of view, that's great. So breaking down some of those entrenched, kind of more corporate attitudes would definitely help. Um, so I think it's not a matter of fitting women into the finance industry as it stands. It's more adapting it so that it's inclusive of everybody. Networking now, is it still deemed to be the best way forward to finding your next investor, your next partner for your startup? Is networking good for women? Are women confident or strong enough or are they just put off by this whole process? It's, it's interesting. I, I don't think it's a strength issue. I think it's just when you walk into a room full of men, you feel on the back foot no matter who you are. To give you an example, um, kind of a flip example, when we held our launch event for the International Women's Day a couple of years ago, uh, it was a room full of women, obviously. There were four exceptions. Four guys in the room all connected to us in some shape or form, some through investors, some was a co-investor. And one of those co-investors, um, he had a daughter just a month before. And after the event, he came up to me and said, hey, now I know what you girls feel like when you walk into a room full of us. It's not comfortable. And it's certainly not a friendly environment because if people don't look like us when we walk in, we naturally feel it's, it's a very kind of primal response. So it's not even just about individual's confidence, it's built in, it's hardwired. So we need to change the composition of those rooms. I really wanted to know if Anya was going to change or wanted to change the culture of networking. Anya doesn't always rely on networking. People obviously approach Anya to pitch, but does network need to upgrade, change really, to accommodate women with families? For us at least, obviously I can't speak for other VCs, but we, for example, don't go to pitching days. 
because I don't think pitches work as, as a tool, as, as an instrument. I don't think they highlight the best deals and they certainly don't give me the right information to make a decision. Um, we make it very easy to people for people to apply to us. You can go straight onto the website, send us a deck and we will take a look at it. Yes, we do get referrals. Of course, other investors send us stuff. Our very first investment was a referral from another family office. It was too early stage for them. But actually, all it did at the time was make me go and have a meeting with the guys. And I would do that for any other venture if I see a deck that I really like or even just an idea that I really like. So I think it's being open to sourcing transactions from as wide a range of sources as possible. And that's where a lot of VCs struggle because then their pipeline tends to be incredibly narrow. It comes from the same small group of sources. And that needs to break. That needs to change. Um, and we need to make it easy for people to send a deck or a summary for a VC to be able to have a quick look and say, actually, this might be interesting or it might not be. Anya and I have read the book Invisible Women. It's by Caroline Criado Perez, and the book is about exposing the data bias in a world designed for men. Caroline's done an amazing job doing the research to put it all together. What it has given me, or someone like me, is ammunition. I was recently in front of a room, on a panel in front of a room full of men. It was a family office summit, naturally full of men. And we were in this diversity, typical diversity panel, right at the end of the event. And it allowed me to connect with those men on the level because they walked into rooms thinking, well, we live in a meritocracy, everyone has a chance. But being able to talk to them in the sense, like for example, I asked them, you know, how many people drive? How many people in the room have a car? And of course, everyone's hands shut up and they all men, they love cars. But then being able to explain to them that if, if they're driving home from a restaurant and their wife is driving and they get into an accident, they have a kind of 10 to 15% chance of a serious injury or death. Turning that around and being the next day when they're taking their daughter to school, suddenly that risk can go up to as much as 40%. That actually made every single man stand up and lean forward. That's kind of engagement that we need. I think that's what Caroline's work has given us, the real tangible examples that we can put in front of these people. You know, in tech space, I can talk to them about um, voice recognition software. And again, people think that, well, okay, so it doesn't work as well for women. It's a bit of a, you know, an issue with Alexa or whatever it might be. But when you apply that to medicine, when you apply that to surgeons dictating notes about their patients, where mistakes can cost very dearly, when you apply that to cars, when you're in an accident and you need to call emergency services, suddenly that becomes a life and death situation. And increasingly we're relying on those technologies, we're relying on algorithms which are biased and which are also private. So most of us don't even understand how biased they are because they're all proprietary information. So suddenly awareness of those issues become very critical. Like mm. for example, we don't invest in HR kind of digital solutions because I can't trust that those algorithms will not be biased. From interviews we have completed on women making waves, there are moments when we've heard that women have to pit against each other. Um, I think it's, it's an age-old issue because you either get women collaborating or you get women really competing. Um, but historically, women get penalised for supporting other women within organisations. We've seen that on performance reviews, we've seen that within the VC industry where if partners 
female partners promote other women and, and really kind of take them under their wings, they get penalized as a result. Uh, we've seen that within large corporates. Um, and that needs to change. And I'm not sure how we change that, because obviously men don't get penalized for, <laughs> for supporting other white men. But somehow that needs to shift before women feel comfortable and open in, in doing so. Diversity is about, to get value from diversity, you have to make everyone feel included. You have to create an organization, culture, and environment where anyone can, can really kind of plug in and feel comfortable. And that's something that's sometimes not easy to do. It's something that I'm certainly mindful of as we grow as a team, but also within our portfolio companies and between our portfolio companies. And I was very pleased. We had a, for the first time um, in September, we had a, a dinner for all of our founders. There was about 15 people in the room across five different companies. And you've had everything from 20-year-olds to 50-year-olds. You had about 12 different nationalities, completely different backgrounds, and, and they all got on. There was this tribe atmosphere, you know, and between them day to day, they exchange ideas, they exchange information and resources. And to me, that's what I want to build. And, and that's when real value happens. I asked Anya if she thought there is a gender bias towards women receiving a lot more criticism in business than men. I think women are judged more harshly all the way through succeeding. And it, it is difficult to shift that, that whole idea that a woman has to be twice as good as a man. It's still present. And yes, when someone really successful as a woman fails, she does get a lot more criticism as a result. But I think slowly that's shifting. I think the more we start to accept failure in entrepreneurship as a constructive thing, up to point, obviously. In Europe, we, don't, we just don't have that failure culture that you have in the Silicon Valley. In, in the Valley, you could have, you know, most, quite a few VCs would not even look at you if you haven't tried at least a couple of businesses. They almost feel like, well, go, go make some mistakes and then come back. I remember when um, I was interviewed for a job here in the UK, this was like 12 years ago, I was setting up my very first business, it was a social impact incubator, and I was also at the same time interviewing for this impact, quite a senior job to run a, a kind of a UK division of one of the biggest impact organizations in the world, and I remember after the interview they told me, go do the, the, the incubator, fail, and then come back. And it really stunned at the time because I was really young and I thought, hang on a second, <laughs> I'm good enough now. But I now know what they meant. The experience that I've had over the years of being in different businesses, of seeing them succeed and some fail, of, of kind of going through all these different situations has been incre incredibly valuable. It means I can avoid so many issues now and I have a very much broader and deeper perspective on things. When it comes to gaining success through the experience of failure, Anya clearly thinks the US have a head start and that Europe is still playing catch up. I think we are a younger kind of entrepreneurial ecosystem than the US. It yeah. takes us a while to catch up to where they are. You know, if, if we keep in mind that the VC industry in the US was born after the Second World War, and actually, in, in many ways, you could argue George Dorio created it during the Second World War. It's the only reason they could mask the resources to support Europe during the war. Um, that was the dry run. How do you leverage ideas and get them to market as quickly as possible? 
that was kind of the, the beginnings of it. In Europe, we're very much behind. Ten years ago, when Seedcamp was being formed, people kept saying, well, there is no entrepreneurship in Europe. <laughs> it doesn't have entrepreneurial spirit. Now, obviously, we all know that it does. But it's taken the last decade from people like Rashmus Sahoni, for example, to, to really build on that and, and prove those people wrong. Now, there are always challenges too. Launching a venture capital fund and having a kid at the same time as a single parent, that, that first year was hard, let's put it this way. <laughs> and it is doable, it's perfectly possible, and I really admire women who make it work. But it's, it's been a lot of blood, sweat and tears, and it's a lonely journey when you're trying to be, you're trying to figure out two complete different things at the same time. Um, and you're constantly pulled in, in multiple directions. The number of evening events that happen for work are horrendous. The number of times I have to tell people, you're trying to do a diversity event at seven in the evening. How are you going to attract women in their 30s? That you're putting more pressure on them when they already have a long day and then they have to go home and pick up their kids from school and deal with all the kind of household stuff. I think all of those pressures are difficult. I agree with Scandinavians who are much clearer about these boundaries between work and personal life. There has to be balance. That culture of being in the office or being at work until 9, 10, 11, multiple times a week, I don't think it's constructive. I don't think it makes us as productive as we could be. I certainly do shorter hours than some of my colleagues because I have to be home for 5 o'clock, 5 till 7 is my daughter's time. Um, after she's in bed, I go back on email quite often or on the phone and, and finish things. I don't do emails on weekends unless it's an emergency with one of my portfolio companies, which happens quite rarely, but you know, it's a boundary I had to put in place. And some people took a while to adjust to that, but it's doable. I think it hasn't made me any less determined or effective at what I do. Now there is always time, according to Anya, to re-energize away from the office. I genuinely enjoy spending time with my daughter. She's going through that period of changing every single day, learning new things, and it's just shifted my own perspective on the world and seeing her view has been incredibly energizing. But obviously, as you know, a lot of parents with young children, they don't get a lot of me time. You get little moments when you can. I, I read a lot. I, I, I love reading on the train or whenever I get a few moments here and there. I love photography. I love dinners with close friends and I love traveling and I very much continue to make room for it. Oh, that's lovely. Well, thank you so much indeed, Anja Nowitzki. It's been so lovely having you here today. Thank you so much for having me. That was Anya Nowitzki talking to Susie Thorpe. Interesting talking to Anya Nowitzki there, Linda, because lots of things, obviously, that were in that interview that we, talk, we talked about. But one of the things that came out, not well, I think it is quite important, was the part of networking. She is really, really against now networking at weekends and in the evenings mm -hmm. because she has a child. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult. Yeah. I know networking as something that you do in the evening when you mm -hmm. have finished work. With a glass of wine yeah. and someone's talking or it's just a pure networking event. And it always is after work. 
that's when they happen. Very tricky. And she's representing women, isn't she? I mean, her view on this is all from a woman's perspective. And if she's trying to bring in more female founders and more investors... That was a very big part, I thought, that we've got to change that. But, I mean, how can you change it? Because, really, people are not going to want to stop in the middle of the afternoon to go and meet up with peers. That's the thing. There have been some uh, some networking events that have been happening at breakfast, which might be better. But you've still got to drop your kid off at school or at a childminder or wait for a nanny to arrive or something, you know. So, But it should be really, I suppose, just part of your working day, even if the children are at school yeah, and do after It's usually not time, though. There's no. just usually not time. It's very, very tricky one. It is a tricky one. Yeah, well, that's one to remember. So we hope you enjoyed it. You're listening to Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio. Mm-hmm.